Hello and welcome to Come to Believe, the podcast, a show where we discuss the barriers to college and how we can reinvent higher ed for the better. Hi, I'm Carlos Martinez. I go by he, him. I'm a 2019 Aruba College grad and also a communications manager at Come to Believe. In today's episode, we are talking about belonging in the college classroom and on campus with DFC clinical faculty member of communications and journalism, Amir Mohammed. Without further ado, let's dive into the episode. Hello, hello. Welcome, Amir. My name is Carlos Martinez. I think we've already talked before, but we're here again to have a conversation about belonging. And I'm really excited to get your perspectives coming from DFC and me being a graduate from Aruba College, now working for CTB. Super excited to get to learn more about your work and how belonging is such a key component for you. But why don't we get started with the first question? Can you tell us about your personal background and your route to becoming a faculty member at um, at DFC and what drew you to higher ed and in particular to DFC? Well, first, Carlos, it's good to see you again, and thank you so much uh, for the invitation. I am super excited about uh, the opportunity to share and and just to share space with you again and and to have this important conversation. So I'm the son of working class immigrants, and uh, I grew up in this really culturally rich environment. And by that, what I mean is it was a very multicultural space, and that was critical for me, especially later on in life. Um, so while I grew up in that sort of culturally rich space, at the same time, my life has always been shaped by sort of various forms of interlocking sort of oppression, right? And, you know, thinking about growing up with a working class family and having sort of economic instability, having housing insecurity, Part of my story is that I grew up with a single mom for a long time and, you know, seeing the sort of sexism and the misogyny that she experienced, right, and the judgment. Um, And then, then of course, uh, as a multiracial person, just swimming in the water of white supremacy and dealing with racism, right? So all of that shaped me and brings me to where I am today. And more specifically, like the specific track, I grew up as this sort of, you know, this biracial kid that you know, we kind of struggled to make ends meet for a while, gain some economic sto- sort of stability. Uh, family moved out to the to to a predominantly white neighborhood, sent me to uh, to to a predominantly white high school. But you know, I didn't have a lot of options for going to college, and my family. I'm a first generation college student, so like that wasn't something that my family was really versed on. My mom, and at that time. Uh, my stepdad, who who was like a father to me, you know, they they're amazing. They they did everything they could for me, and they're amazing people, hardworking. But they didn't they didn't possess sort of that particular knowledge, and so like my my options were really limited, um, and I ended up at at a private Christian college, which actually the only reason I ended up going there was because they offered me the most money, the best financial aid package, and they accepted me. Right. So those two things were like, check. And to be honest with you, they could have offered me a terrible financial aid package. I didn't have the financial literacy to even understand what I was going to be paying for. I just felt like I'm supposed to go to college. So that's what I did. 
But that decision actually changed my life because it was there that I met some people that sort of set me on a path that helped me get my first job. And after I had my first job, that helped me get my next job. And then my next job actually helped me uh, end up at, at DFC. So it's just this sort of wild trajectory. But, um, but that's kind of how I ended up at DFC. I relate a lot to your experience with everything, not just how you ended up at DFC, but also your show was going into college. I also grew up at a, with a single parent, at a single parent household who didn't, my, my mom did not go to school either. She is from Mexico. Uh, I grew up in Mexico, actually. And when I came here, it was also a cultural shock of kind of having to relearn a lot of things and, and unlearn a lot of things as a little kid, you know, trying to navigate college by myself, even though there was still, I, I have people who, who tried helping me, who actually wanted to see me do well. Yeah. But it wasn't until I got to Arupa that, okay, that, that that's when people were, okay, here, these are the tools. We're going to provide them for you, but you have to be willing to, yeah. to learn and to use them and to take advantage of these resources. So it's really cool to see that you are someone who represents that at the faculty level for so many students, like, you know, like the DFC students, like the Arupa students, because they're not used to that. They're still not used to seeing that. And I think it makes a huge impact in the way that they learn and that they grow as not only professionals, but also as human beings. No doubt. Well, I just, I just want to acknowledge, thank you for, first, thank you for sharing that. Appreciate just getting to hear more about your journey and for, for offering that affirmation too. Thank you. <laughs> Let's see for the next question that I have, as we mentioned, belonging is a topic for the discussion for the month, even though we focus on belonging every single day. Uh, we want to highlight it even more now. And I wanted to ask you, what role did belonging play in your path to DFC? How did that come about for you? Yeah, that's, I think that's a good question. So like I mentioned uh, earlier, I grew up in really multicultural or culturally rich spaces. And then we moved to that predominantly white neighborhood. And that's significant because I, I don't think I ever questioned my belonging when I was growing up in those culturally rich spaces. But as soon as we moved out to that predominantly white neighborhood and I started going to a predominantly white neighborhood, uh, a predominantly white school, I really started to feel on the margins of belonging. And I didn't realize it at the time when I was going through it, but, but sort of swimming again in the water of white supremacy and internalizing racism had a great deal to do with my sense of belonging. I also didn't realize it at the time, but like from an educational standpoint, I would say like my, who I am and where I come from and the things that matter to me, those things were not represented in my education. They were not represented in my social circles. And so like being on the margins, being excluded, not feeling that sense of belonging, that absolutely shaped uh, sort of my reality and um, what the the sort of work I wanted to to be involved with. When I got to college, that was the first time um, where I really experienced a greater sense of belonging than I ever had before. And like I said, that belonging changed my life. It really did because it opened up a network that helped create a pathway for me to sort of end up where I am today. Again, that is very, very powerful. And I relate to that because 
in high school, I never really questioned me belonging because I was surrounded by Latinos, specifically Mexicans. So my culture was always present for me in high school, uh, at least when it came to my peers and the, my friends, right? But then going at Arupe, it expanded even more in a way that I was learning about different cultures, different uh, Latino cultures, but I still felt that I had a safe space mm. for me to feel included and that my culture and my traditions and values were still being respected. But then when I transferred to Loyola, Chicago, there was an issue when it came to belonging then, just because I stopped seeing a lot of my Latino friends and a lot of the, the Latino you know, culture being represented in that way. And then I also felt very much like the admin out when people were talking about going to, I don't know, uh, Dubai for spring break, yeah. or people were talking about going to even just another state yeah. for a weekend to see their family. I was like, well, I wish I could do that, but I don't have the money or the means to do that. Right. Yeah. Or maybe I have to work even more just because, you know, I need to make ends meet. So it was it was interesting to see that for me shifting after Arupe uh, a bit more. So and, and it's cool to see that you're there as a representation of belonging uh, at all levels and how your experiences, you know, are just so unique and you bring that into your your classroom. And that's essentially kind of a segue into my next question. Can you tell me a bit about your role at DFC as both a teacher as a mentor, and a mentor? Yeah. And what classes do you teach? What does mentorship look like at DFC? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think officially I'm clinical faculty or clinical professor of communication studies at Doherty Family College. Um, and uh, but to be perfectly honest, I ain't, I, I never put too much stock in titles. I uh, I teach a, a a public speaking course prior to coming to Doherty Family College. I I taught courses like intercultural communication gender communication, family communication. But at DFC, uh, we're really focused on getting our scholars an Associate of Arts degree. And to do that, as a part of that, we're committed to having, we have to meet our core curriculum so that they can easily transfer to the four-year at St. Thomas if they want. But we also want to make sure our scholars uh, are able to meet the requirements of the Minnesota transfer curriculum and so we zero in on, we understand exactly what classes we need to offer. I think every faculty member at DFC, except for maybe the English faculty, teach their their particular course, which is actually, you know, when I came to DFC, that's the thought, that's the thing that I thought I was going to miss. I was like, I'm losing out on teaching uh, a variety of courses, but it's it's actually been really amazing and cool. So that's the teaching piece of it. And then just from a workload, uh, from a so, so a class load standpoint, I teach what's kind of referred to as a traditional 3-3. Three, three. Um, so three classes in the in the fall and then three classes in the spring. They're four credit courses. Occasionally, uh, I'll teach a class in the summer or over J term. If somebody doesn't, uh, if, if somebody would fail the course, then I would, I would offer it uh, in summer or J term so that they'd have an opportunity to pick up the, the class or make up the credit. From a mentoring standpoint, uh, I have a cohort of 20 scholars and I meet with them regularly. I meet with them individually once a month and then I meet with the cohort as a whole um, once a month as well. 
Um, so that's just kind of the nuts and bolts of it. But like the mentoring, yeah, I mean, the mentoring is just like being there, sending an encouraging email to also just like creating space for people, seeing folks in the hallway and getting excited about seeing them and and just thinking through and helping students get to that next level. What do you want to do? What are your dreams? How can we reach those dreams? And so trying to do that is, I would say, a big part of the mentoring work. That is cool. That is very, just again, motivating to hear that you get to work with these students and be that, you know, I guess, role model in a way, but also their their teacher and their professor and, they, and for them to learn from you in different ways. My next question that I have, we know that DFC puts a lot of emphasis on, you know, creating a sense of belonging on campus for every single student. Where do you think that emphasis comes from and why do you think it's important? Yeah, so I would say that <laughs> there are a lot of ways I could answer this. I think probably if I put my university hat on, the university would say like, you know, we're really mission driven and Catholic social teaching really inspires our work. But if I took my university cap off and I just sort of thought about your question at face value, I would say our values as a college definitely motivate our work. So we got some pretty, some pretty like badass values, if I can say that, right? We are, we are committed to being anti-racist, to being community-minded, culturally sustaining, empowering, holistic, rigorous, student-focused. Those are literally, those that I just named, those are literally our values as a college. So that, that absolutely informs the work we do. But culture is not just on a piece of paper. So part of what we're doing and the culture we're creating and that sense of belonging is about the people here. So that includes our dean, Dean Buffy Smith. She's a big part of that. She sort of promotes this environment, this environment of closeness. And she uses this term a lot. She, she talks about Ohana, so this idea of family. And so I think, you know, that really resonates with the scholars a lot. Um, and then and then I would say, of course, our staff and faculty, like we are deeply committed to creating a culture of belonging, in part because a lot of us have have felt excluded on and on the on the margins or on the outside of belonging. So I, I would say all of those things inform uh, and and sort of uh, generate the the sense of belonging we have at DFC. And it very much holds true to my experience at Aruba, and it's cool to hear. I cannot wait to go and visit DFC at some point and get to experience that. I'm sure it'll be the same feeling that I get whenever I get to go to Aruba. And that's just, again, uh, it's cool to see and it's cool to hear because there are still so many students who do not have the opportunity to to experience this, right? So mm. hearing that there is a place for students to have this is just it, it means a lot. But how about belonging in, in your classroom? How does that play a role in the way that, that you teach? And what is the relationship between belonging and academic success? Yeah, great. Love these questions, right? So I would say in, in the classroom, belonging is the water that we swim in. It is the air we breathe. Belonging forms the basis of everything we do. It gives life and meaning to all the work we're engaging in. And so it, I, I can't underscore how critical belonging is to my sort of approach 
to pedagogy and to the work that we do. Now, you asked what's sort of the relationship of longing and academic success. And I would put my research cap on here and I would say research shows that belonging has an impact on academic achievement and persistence. So the greater the sense of belonging, the greater the academic achievement and persistence of scholars. So if institutions are only self-interested for no other reason, right? Like, let's hope that they're not just interested in their own self-preservation. But if that's all it was, we know that creating a greater sense of belonging improves academic achievement and persistence. But the research also shows that it actually improves and scholars are more apt to have a positive experience and feel better about their time in school. So it's not just about actually, ho hopefully we care more about than just the numbers, right? And we actually care about and, and are scholar centered. And when we do that, we know that if we're creating belonging, this is gonna help us sort of create a more scholar centered approach. Uh, and it's going to provide that better experience for those scholars. So, so the relationship is is pretty clear there, I would say. And in my personal experience, I'll I'll just add this one thing: the way I see it play out on a day to day basis is I don't really have a ton of attendance issues, and I don't, you know, scholars who might be a little reluctant to show up or like they might have a little, you know, that's not you know, people are excited. They want to be a part of what's happening in our classroom. And so that's what I see on a on a day to day basis. Again, it seems like I, this is bringing me back to my experience at Aruba, because that is essentially how I felt. I, I wanted to be in class, I wanted to be part of the curriculum and actually learn something because of the way that my professor treated me and treated all my peers. You can tell these things. You can tell when it's a professor just wants to get it done and teach. But then you can also notice when they want to get to know you and go beyond the surface and actually, you know, learn about your ideas, your perspectives, you as a person, and what you have to offer. So it's really cool that I mean, it seems like belonging is definitely guiding a lot of the way that the way that you teach and that you implement the curriculum. And I think it's pretty cool. But now looking at it. You know, zooming out a little bit, when we think of the FC as a whole institution, what has been most successful in ensuring that students feel a sense of belonging and community? In terms of kind of that that big picture, what are we doing at DFC that's helping us? Um, I would say that we have a summer enrichment program. So it's two weeks. It's basically an orientation program uh, before the start of scholars freshman year. They come on campus, they get acclimated. And, uh, and they build community with each other. And they sort of just develop some foundational skills of like, hey, here's some stuff you're going to need to know. Even just like, here's how you log into a learning management system. All right. Do a mock assignment on a learning management system. Right. So those basic things. And then there's a lot of social pieces that are happening in, in our in that orientation program. We call it SEP, Summer Enrichment Program. And then our model is also built on a cohort, uh, around cohorts. And so scholars get, get to take all of their classes with the same cohort of students for their two years. And that does a lot for the sense of belonging they experience. Uh, the other pieces I think are that we have a, a really explicit commitment to social justice and anti-racism. And we're really transparent about our commitment and intentions with those things. And so the folks we attract, they want to be a part of that. They want to come to us and that that helps 
infuse that sense of belonging in the work we're doing. And and then the last thing I would say is we are we use culturally sustaining pedagogy. Like our faculty is is committed to teaching our classes from that sort of pedagogical perspective. So the fact that students can have their cultures reflected in the in the instruction they're receiving, uh, I think uh, also bolsters a sense of belonging. Yeah, that's cool. And again, I it brings me back to Aruba and how we also had the enrichment, the summer program, but they would take us onto a trip and just to build community, to get to know the dean, to get to know the staff, the faculty, and some of our upperclassmen peers that would serve as, you know, as mentors and as leaders for us to look up to. So it, it was really nice that we got to bond in that way from the very beginning, even before classes started. So it's nice to see the the similarities between both. I mean, and it makes sense. We're both said to be model schools. So it, it's just amazing to, to be part of that. And now for the next question, and this is important to me as an alumni, uh, when we're thinking of the DFC alums as a transition to a university, maybe the University of St. Thomas or into the workforce, how does belonging play a role in that? And is this something that, you know, that they take with them afterwards? Mm, that's a really, really deep question. How is belonging something you can take with you? I would say the answer to that question is yes and no. All right. And here's what I mean by that. I think when scholars come to DFC, they gain basic skills, they gain a ton of confidence, and that can translate to anywhere they go. And the other piece is too, I think, while they're like gaining that confidence and that ability to know that I know, I literally know the same things that they're learning on different campuses. And I can, I can hang anywhere. I got the skills and the knowledge to, to hang anywhere. So the com that that confidence and that knowledge is critical for them to know I do belong as a part of this community, a part of the academic community, a part of the professional community. And then I would say there's another piece though, right? Like this belonging that you you find within yourself too. And that sounds kind of weird, but like you you develop an appreciation for yourself so that you understand that like although belonging is granted there's a there's a sense in which I think as scholars come here, they realize like I am whole. I belong to myself, you know, and like I'm okay, I'm good. I don't need to receive, I don't need anybody else's approval to be okay. And so when I talked about my journey and internalizing that racism, that was really like learning that I am whole was a critical part and has been a critical part of me pushing back against white supremacy, against internalized racism. And so in that sense, absolutely, I think that that, tra that translates, they take that, that's, a, that's something that they gain at DFC that they can take anywhere. So nobody can ever take that away from them. And I am so proud of that and happy about that. Now I said, I also said, but, but the answer is no too, right? And the, and the reason why I say no is because belonging has to be nurtured, right? And so when they go, when you talked about going to Loyola, right? Or when our students go to the four-year St. Thomas, they, those folks over there, they, they got to be nurturing that. You can't just assume it's all good. You had your two years at DFC. Uh-uh. You got to nurture that. 
corporations got to nurture that. All right. So that's that's got to keep happening. And the other piece is we can't lose sight of the fact that power brokers can still restrict access to spaces. That reality remains intact. And so, yes, we can imbue our scholars with a sense of belonging and they have the knowledge and understanding that they can belong anywhere, but it has to be nurtured and power brokers have to uh, distribute power and create access and pathways. Wow, that's gave me chills because that literally the experience that I that I had, um, you know, at Arupa, it was an amazing space. And then afterwards, it was a bit rough. But then what stayed with me was this sense of knowing my worth and my value as a human being, and also as an academic, as a professional, and passing that on to other people. I think that's, that's something that's invaluable that I learned from Arupa, and I am sure DFC students are, are learning as well. And it's so cool to hear and really empowering. I think it's forging this sort of generation of future and even now current leaders that are going to be putting an emphasis on belonging and how powerful it can be, no matter which industry, which you know field you're, you're in. Mm-hmm. It can definitely make a, an impact on in anybody. But then my next question, what is something you have learned about belonging at DFC? And how has that changed or shaped the way that you teach or work with with students? Absolutely. Fantastic question. Uh, aside from like an occasional disgruntled scholar, so I've been I've been teaching for for quite a few years now. And, you know, along the way, you might get a disgruntled scholar here or there that, you know, uh, for, for whatever reason. Uh, the only reason I mentioned that is because I really, you know, one of the things I've prided myself in is just being present and and providing a really positive experience for scholars in 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 the classroom. Um, so I haven't, and, and that's shown up in my in my um, in my course reviews, right? I've almost I've almost always gotten really positive course reviews, except there was one time I got some critical reviews. It was my very first semester at DFC. And it was such a wonderful, great learning experience for me. See, I came in believing that well-intentioned and I was, I came in with this sort of really goofy notion of rigor, I think. And so I thought clarity and transparency were going to be the best way to help my, help the scholars sort of achieve these high expectations that I knew they could reach. And by clarity and transparency, I was like, no late work right? And I'm going to be clear about that. There's no exceptions. You know what the, is just a very set of, here's, here's a very, if you miss more than this amount of classes, this is, this is what happens. And I think, you know, there's academic freedom and people have the ability to shape their courses um, the way they want, and they got to find what works for them. But what I learned is that, that my scholars didn't feel supported by that. And they actually, that, that actually shut them down. And the thing that I wanted most for them in that space was for them to learn and grow. And that didn't really help them do that. And so I learned right away that like, I have to be really attentive and attuned to how scholars are going to feel supported. Some scholars are going to feel supported with that clarity and transparency. They need those clear deadlines because if you, if you don't have those clear deadlines, they won't, they don't have that structure. And they're like, I've never had structure. I need structure. Right. But other scholars don't like for them, they're just like, yo, you don't understand my life. I was just up helping, helping my mom 
with my with my siblings. And oh, by the way, I have to work to be able to provide because my my parents' status doesn't let them work or it doesn't let them get consistent work. So all of these different factors. So like, so that was a really good opportunity for me to just realize that like, you just got to meet scholars where they're at, you know, and figure out what's each person's pathway. Now that creates a huge challenge for educators um, because what we're essentially talking about is like, you, you're trying to understand and get to know each of your scholars and understand how are you going to be able to be successful here? And that's not a cookie cutter. But but since that time, that was that was that you know it was amazing. It took me one semester. I I figured it out quick. I was like, I got it. I get it. And so I became a coach. I became a coach for folks. I I just allowed myself to become more flexible. And as an educator, I would say I zeroed in on um, the objectives of my course. How can I not compromise the integrity of the education they're receiving? How can I not compromise the integrity of the course and still meet the objectives? And as long as I can uh, hold those things true, I'm meeting, I'm not compromising the integrity of the course and I'm meeting the objectives. And most importantly, the scholars are growing and learning that I'm in a good space. It doesn't matter what it looks like, uh, but I'm in a good space. That is amazing because I'm, I mean, I'm not an educator, <laughs> but I can only imagine how difficult it is to have, to just be super hyper aware of everyone's situation all at once. It's not easy. You have to work with X amount of students. And even sometimes just working with two might be incredibly hard. Yeah. I can only imagine having to work with more than 20. But that just goes to say how much passion and care there goes there is a BFC coming from the faculty like you that put that extra work, that extra effort into actually meeting students where they're at. And that's, again, something that I experienced and continue to experience at Arupe. I went through rough patches last year and every most of my professors and some of them that were not even my professors directly were reaching out to me during difficult times. So it just goes to show how much the FC and Aruba faculty truly care to not only be an educator, but to be a guide and a mentor and a friend to these students. And that just, it means the world. And I'm sure the students feel the same way. But now the last question that I have for you, uh, and it goes along with this last one, what advice or guidance do you have for other faculty members and campus leaders as it relates to cultivating a sense of belonging in their classroom or or in their campus. Yeah. Well, it's it's actually uh, a bit apropos that you should ask that. It's a little funny that you should ask that now. Um, a few colleagues and I, we have a book chapter uh, on academic belonging coming out. And so that's uh, down the pike, I think. It goes to the publishers later this summer. But but we offer some suggestions in the chapter. And so I, I'll, I'll kind of cherry pick some of the things and then throw in a few other things. But one of the things we talk about is building relationships. And if you, as folks are listening to this podcast, that's probably a, a thread, like a through line that they're going to hear, right? Like the importance of those relationships. So build relationships with scholars and see them as real people. I think that's part of the lesson I just shared, right? When I learned, right, I think I always believed and saw them as real people, but I just had this kind of goofy notion of how I could help them reach their goals. So like just remembering they're real people, right? And then along with that, I would say it comes like 
eliminating power differentials. Are you, I mean, there's a lot of ideas about this. So I don't want to, you know, people work really hard to get their PhDs and to be called doctor and this and that. And I don't want, and so there's different ideas. Some people are like, you know, it's good for them to see, you know, a role model named doctor and stuff like that. But what does that do to the communication in the classroom? What does that do with the relational closeness? What distance is being created by that? So for me, my particular vantage point, and I know I have back and forth with my colleagues here all the time about these things, because some of them are like, no, I, you know, but, uh, but for me personally, I'm kind of like, I think eliminating power distances and power differentials whenever possible, we can't completely eliminate all of them, but, but whenever we can do that, I think that's a good thing. Eliminating that social distance, letting folks know, like, I'm a real person too. And I see you as a real person and I value what you bring to this space. You're going to teach me something. I got some stuff I'm going to teach you too. And guess what? When we're done with this journey, we're all going to learn and it's going to be really dope. And after this, some of us, we're still going to stay in touch, you know, and that's going to be really cool too. So so I would say building those relationships, seeing people, seeing scholars as 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 real people uh, with real lives, um, eliminating those power differentials. And then just from an educational standpoint, just from a pedagogical standpoint, I just say like getting rid of some of these deficit notions, right? Like, oh, well, they don't have this or they don't have that. And really thinking about like, wait a second, they're bringing a whole lot into this classroom. So we would call that an asset-based approach, right? And then the belonging piece comes when from that pedagogical standpoint, when you're reflecting that reality, their lived realities and their cultural experiences as a part of your teaching. We have to teach in ways that speak to the lives our scholars are, are living. And if we don't do that, the education is dead and it's useless. So let's not have dead education, right? Let's have education that can transform lives and transform society. My drop. <laughs> Again, it brings me back to a rupee uh, every single time, just I, for instance, we have a professor, you probably know of her, Dr. Almada. Everyone calls her Minerva. And it goes along with the notion of power differentials and getting rid of those, right? But at some point, I don't mind calling her Dr. Almada. And I'm sure many other students don't mind that either because it's a sign of respect. And no doubt it brings up this whole point of like, we see each other as equal human beings capable of doing amazing things and bringing our own unique experiences and knowledge. But I also respect you and I want to show that to you. And that just comes out naturally because. Yes. Yes. It's so, earned, right? It's earned. Like you right. don't have to, you don't have to lord that over people. You don't have to be like, yo, this is what it is because all of a sudden that's the same thing. That's the same thing. All of a sudden people are like, no, I, thank you for giving me that space. And now because I was afforded that space, I freely give this and yep. I want to honor and respect that. And that is, that is beautiful. That's amazing because I mean, there are so many things that I learned from all the faculty that I've learned from you just through this conversation. And I, I'm sure every single DFC and Arupa students are also bringing so many things that we all can continue to learn from them and their journey, their unique experience. It's just, I mean, we're all human beings. So we all bring something to the table, no matter who we are and where we come from. So it's so cool that you for that you continuously encourage that to happen in your classroom and that now you're advising and guiding other faculty and campus leaders to do the same because it's it makes a huge difference in the way that people grow and develop as as professionals as whatever you want to be 